We just wanted you guys to vibe to the music a little bit this morning. It's a good transition there. Actually, one of the cool things that you may or may not know about this messenger series that we've been in is that this is something we've synced up with Kid City. And if you have a kid or grandkid or that uh, goes to Kid City in the first hour, um, they've been going through this series. When we uh, took this past summer and we were planning our uh, message map for the year, one of the things that we tried to strategically do is that when it made sense, we wanted to connect our children's teaching and youth teaching to what we were teaching in here on Sunday morning. So when it made sense, we tried to sync that up. For example, when we just went through the book of Mark, verse by verse, actually our youth group went through the gospel of Mark as well. And so that way, what we want to try to create is an opportunity for you to be able to have conversation with your grandchildren, children, niece, nephew, whatever the case may be, that's relevant to actually what they talked about to help equip you to facilitate a deeper conversation with them. So when they say, hey, we're doing this thing about messengers and they're telling us about God's called us to be messengers. And you're like, well, Pastor Derek told us about that too. And you know, so that way you guys can have a conversation about the various things that you're growing in scripture in. So that's the purpose of all of that, in case you were wondering. And so we actually just straight up took their fun bumper video that just kind of let us jam out for a second. This week, I'm going to talk about this idea of being messengers of grace. And for us to understand grace, we first have to understand this concept of sin. Because we have to understand the bad news before we can really understand the good news. And we need to understand something about sin. Sin is not partial. Sin is universal. And the definition of sin is really anything that violates God's law or any human activity that's in violation with God's will. So when we categorically try to rank sin, when we try to say like this sin is really bad and this one's like not so bad because we can't say like it's a good sin, right? Like like this just has to be, you know, not as bad. When we look at sin that way, then what we're doing and what we're admitting in that moment when we begin to rank and classify and categorize sin is that we really are saying we misunderstand grace, And we miss this idea of grace because grace is us getting something that we did not deserve. And when we categorically look at sin, it just reveals our misunderstanding of grace. Because when we categorize sin, there are things that we call little sins or things that aren't as bad as some sins. Like we'll say, well, at least I didn't do, you know, this, fill in the blank. And we look at it that way. And the problem with that is that we'll feel less guilty about it. We'll feel like, oh, you know, that just needs a little repentance, right? As if like God has like certain amounts of repentance attached to certain sins or things like that. And then we began to do something far worse. We actually will judge other people based on what category of sin we think that they're participating in. And we'll go, oh, well, you know, those people do those types of things and those types of people are bad because they do those types of things. And when we think about sin that way, we misunderstand grace because we don't fully understand the way God looks at sin and the grace that you and I need because we begin to feel like, well, at least I'm not as bad as people who do things like this. And it becomes even more difficult because when we see other people who maybe has had challenges in their life, they've had certain difficulties that they've experienced because maybe even they've made some really poor choices, we run the risk 
of taking the moral high ground that makes us feel superior. And then we began to look at ministry as something that we're ministering to people from, from an elevated point where I'm reaching down to people because I'm up here because I'm not doing the things they're doing or I haven't made the decisions they've made and I'm not experiencing the things they're experiencing. So therefore, I look at myself this way and I see myself as reaching down rather than reaching out. And it completely changes this way that we understand grace because we begin to feel superior. It's even more difficult when we have affluence because when we have material wealth, when we have affluence, it can be more difficult for us to understand our need. Case in point, someone who's raised in a safe, affluent family, they have a more difficult time understanding what it means to struggle and be poor. They just don't understand fully because they haven't had that experience. And so even in their efforts to look at people who are in poverty, they don't fully understand what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck or to know, not know where your next meal's coming from because they've never been in that situation. So they don't fully understand that because they've lived this life. And it also impacts us in this idea of Christian subculture. And I think that this is my story in the way that I was raised, is that I was raised up in a Christian subculture. And we do this all the time where we grow up in this environment that is safe, it's very Christ-focused, very Christ-centered. I mean, we have Christian television shows, Christian T-shirts. We drive Christian cars listening to Christian music. I mean, it's, it, we eat at Christian restaurants that have scriptures on the wall because, buddy, if you've got scriptures on the wall at your restaurant and across somewhere, we're eating there on Sunday because that's... And that's what we do. We're supporting Christian businesses and, and, and we have Christian subculture with our music and there's even like genres within that subculture. So we can be just completely bubble wrapped with Christianity and all things that are Christian if we want to. And while there is certainly a ton of benefit to experiencing and just like me growing up in an environment where, man, we were at church all the time. Our life was just so impacted by that. And I grew up as a church kid. My, my parents weren't necessarily in a staff role at church, but they might have well been with how often we went to church. There's also some challenges to being raised in Christian subculture. There are. And we need to face the reality that there are challenges being raised in Christian subculture because I face those challenges as a product of Christian subculture, completely immersed in Christian subculture. And that is sometimes it can be more difficult to see my need. Because I, and, and it can be more difficult sometimes even for parents and grandparents to see the need for their kids or their grandkids. I have to make sure as a parent that when I'm raising my children in a Christian environment, in a Christian subculture where they are. They go to Christian school. They, they, they hang out with Christian friends. They go to church. We watch Christian shows. They grew up watching Veggie Tales and you know, stuff like that. I, I, I mean, they grew up thinking that's the norm, right? That's their understanding of the norm. I need to make sure as a parent that I don't misappropriate the environment that I've created for them to live in that points them to Christ is not a substitute for them actually knowing Christ. You see, because they still have to come to Christ on their own and they still have to see their need, which means if they're going to see their need for Christ and forgiveness, they're going to have to understand their sin and they're going to have to understand the need to repent. 
But oftentimes we don't see our sin when we're submersed in this Christian subculture because we feel safe and we feel like we're okay because of the things that we're doing and the things that we're not doing, the things that we don't participate in because we compare ourselves to people in the world who are doing bad things and it becomes harder and harder for us to see the bad things we do on par with the bad things that we call bad things. We can even, my goodness, Wow, okay, that makes me feel better about the fertilizer I put out in my yard yesterday. Okay, anyways, sorry, I had a squirrel moment. I'm going to talk a little louder today <laughs> because that's what I need to do. Man, it really came down, made me glad I rode my motorcycle today. All right, so uh, anyways, <laughs> I think that this idea, it's good. Like, so don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not criticizing Christian subculture. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying let's not get into our heads and in our hearts as Christians who may even enjoy certain parts of Christian subculture that it equates to us being Christian because it doesn't. You can participate in all things labeled Christian and not be a Christian. You can own a Bible, you can go to church, you can, you can uh, listen to Christian music, you can have all your presets uh, on your car radio to Christian stations and not know Jesus. You can do that because to know Jesus means that I have to see value in what he did for me, not just know what he did for me. I have to see value to the point that I put my faith in him and that it causes me to repent. And if I don't see my sin on par with the sin of everyone else, then I really don't understand grace and I'm not really getting a full picture of the gospel. I'm only getting a small window of the gospel because I'm not understanding really my need. And we all wanna feel safe, we all wanna feel good, but we all need to realize our sin in the deal. Let's go over to uh, Romans chapter three. We're gonna read here in just a moment in Romans three. And let me give you the context for what the apostle Paul's writing to. This is the reason that the apostle Paul even wrote this letter to the church in Rome. There were two different groups of Christians in the church in Rome. There were the Greek Christians and they grew up in Greek culture. And then there's the Jewish Christians. They grew up in Jewish culture. Now the Greeks grew up worshiping the pantheon of gods. All the things that you learned about in high school, all of the mythology and all that stuff, they grew up believing that stuff was real and true and they worshiped it. And they had like temples dedicated to these different ideas and these different gods. And they did some terrible, awful, horrible things within the context of those temples and they called it worship to those gods. And these people in Greece, these Greek people grew up thinking that was okay and that was normal. But then this message of the gospel comes along. Jesus comes along. All of a sudden, some Greek people come to Jesus. They come to faith in Christ. They repent and they become saved. And they want to be a part of this church, this thing that's happening, this brand new thing that's just at this point a few months old. And then you have the Jewish people who grew up with hearing Moses and the law and the prophets and all these old texts and rich history and all these things that, that, that were pointing to this, this coming Messiah and all of these things that they were believing about God and about creation. And then they came to faith in Jesus as well. And now you've got both groups coming to church together, but they're from very different backgrounds. 
and they began to think that one was better than the other. The Greek people thought that they were better than the Jews because, well, at least they could say we weren't responsible for crucifying Jesus and the Jews were. The Greeks thought that they were uh, more, uh, that they were higher, more, more, more elite, if you will, because they thought that they had the upper hand because they didn't get attached to all of these things within the law that they began to add all these stipulations. And so they didn't have as much to unlearn in that regard. And so they thought, wow, we have an advantage over them. And we feel like we are, we're the Gentiles who have been grafted in to the family of God. But the Jewish people, they thought they were the elite in the room because they can trace their lineage back to Abraham. And my goodness, we have Abraham, who God gave the promise to, who was a friend of God. And, 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 and the, the David you know, came through this, this lineage and Jesus and all these things. And so they began to think they had the upper hand because of the tradition and because of their history. And Paul writes this letter to them, and he's writing it to the Jews and to the Greek Christians who are now coming to church together. One group's thinking they're better than the other. And I know that's not like church at all today. But... <laughs> You have different people looking at another group thinking I'm superior because of this or that. And now you've got Paul saying, no, I'm gonna show you the gospel. And that's what Romans is all about. That's the whole purpose of the letter to the church in Rome because it's made up of these two different groups of people. Uh, Romans chapter three and verse nine, this is what Paul writes to them. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin." But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is what Paul writes to this group of Jews and this group of Greeks who are now one, who are supposed to be united, one family, one body, not Jewish Christians, Greek Christians, one under the banner of of Christ. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I know some of you Bible scholars get geeked out like, about like Greek translations and Greek words and stuff like that. So if you look up the word all in the Greek, the translation and the actual meaning is all. It means like everyone. <laughs> means like, means like everybody. <sighs> so it's like everybody. All means all. And that's what he's saying here. He's basically leveling the playing field. He's saying there aren't like elite Christians and less elite Christians. He's saying there aren't Jewish Christians and Greek Christians and one's better than the other. He said, for all of you have sinned. The thing that unites all of us before we know Christ is that we've all sinned. And he didn't say little sins, big sins, medium sins, you know, like. He said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Levels the playing field. And then he shares with them that now not only is there this group that's lost, but there's also this group who has been redeemed, saved, 
brought into the family of God, reconciled, repented of their sin. And really, there's two groups. And the group that has been saved, the group that has been redeemed, the group that has put their faith and trust in Christ, although they are righteous in the eyes of God, it doesn't give them the right to look down on those who are lost. It should actually drive us to compassion for those who are lost. Amen? It should actually drive us to compassion, not to judgment, because if we're driven to judgment over those who have not yet received Christ, then is Christ really even in us? Because Christ does not bring condemnation. You see, for us to be free recipients of this free grace, we have to also be free dispensers of it and give it freely. Amen? Amen. So that means what I've received from God, I need to give freely to those who need it because we cannot be effective messengers of grace without understanding our need for grace, our need for forgiveness. We cannot. So if we're supposed to be these messengers, I want us to be the most effective messengers that we can. But unless I understand the grace that God has given me, I don't get it because sin affects the poor and the rich. It levels the playing field when it comes to our need, regardless of the choices that we've made in our lives, regardless of how clean of a life that we've lived. Do we really believe this? Do we actually believe this? Because we must understand our need for grace if we are going to be messengers of grace. Let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 5 and let's look at what Peter's saying to the church. And actually what Peter's writing here is that he's actually writing to the persecuted church and uh, he's trying to help them to see their need. 1 Peter chapter 5. Five, page 1016. If that's actually page 1016 in your Bible, you get a free coffee next week. All right. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed a shepherd, a shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who he called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here, Peter is talking to the church that's just beginning to experience the initial part of this suffering thing, this persecution thing that Jesus said was coming. Jesus prophesied that this was going to happen and now it's actually happening and they're struggling in two ways. They're struggling, one, because persecution's no fun, right? I mean, they, they don't want to be persecuted. I mean, some of them are being beaten, imprisoned, all sorts of terrible, terrible things, separated from their families. They're losing their jobs because of this, like they're, the jobs that they probably had for years, like probably 20, 30 years with the company. And next thing you know, the boss finds out you're Christian and you lose your 
job. And then you can't even buy uh, food in certain places because they won't do business with Christians. I mean, this is what the early church was experiencing when persecution first began to ramp up. It didn't immediately go to them being killed. It first started with stuff like this. And then it got more and more intense as time went on. And they're getting discouraged, but they're also looking at their suffering in a prideful way too where they're thinking that they're special because of all these things. And he goes, whoa, 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 hang on. Guys, he said, this persecution you're experiencing, he said, it's not unique to you. The enemy always wants us to isolate ourselves and think that we're the only ones going through what we're going through, right? He also wants us to think that no one would understand our problems, no one would understand this about us, no one would understand that. This is where these guys are at. And he said, what you're experiencing, it's being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Like this is not isolated to you and to this little group over here. You need to understand this is something that's happening all over. He says, so therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And when it's time, he's actually gonna be the one to promote you and exalt you, not you exalting you because look, I'm suffering. Oh, look, I'm just going through this poor old me. Look at this, look at how spiritual I must be that God has chosen sovereignly for me to suffer in such a way. He said, no, 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 no. That's happening all over the world. You're not special. (laughs) So don't think you're special just because you're going through something tough. If you're being persecuted because of Christ in the name of Christ, he's saying, no, that's, that's not something you, you're, you're, you're using to elevate your spirituality. He said, no, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then he tells them this. He said, be sober-minded because the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to snatch up with this pride thing because pride is sneaky. Pride is really sneaky. Because we begin to think highly of ourselves. And when we begin to think highly of ourselves, then we're not sober-minded. We get drunk on ourselves. And when we get drunk on ourselves, then all of a sudden our, 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 our view of everything is messed up and, and distorted. Just like when someone gets drunk. He said, be sober-minded. Humble yourself. Because the enemy's looking for somebody who's getting high on themselves. The enemy's looking for somebody who thinks they're it thinks they're the one who's the most spiritual in the room. Actually, humility is required to give and receive grace. And we have to get this. Humility is required. We have to. If we're going to be people who give and receive grace, that means giving to people, giving to others what they did not deserve. Because, man, we live in a world who we want people to get what's coming to them, don't we? When we see something that we think is unjust, we want our brand of justice to be done. We want somebody to pay, right? I mean, you can sit here and act all pious and spiritual, but let somebody rear-end you on the way home, you want them to pay, right? Somebody's gonna pay for this, right? Someone breaks into your home, you want justice. Man, what an what a odd feeling. If you've ever had your home broken into, it's just such a violation, such a strange feeling. Oh, I just, I want justice. You see something on the news. I just want justice. And when we say we want justice, what we mean is somebody has to pay for this. In our eyes, we think that we're smart enough and we're fair enough to decide that. Grace is not them getting what we think they deserve. Grace is actually them getting what they didn't deserve. And that's what you and I got. That's what we got through the cross. That's what we got through what Jesus did for you and I. Because scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. So what do we deserve? You, you don't want what you deserve. <laughs> because scripture is very clear. All have sinned 
and the wages of sin is death. Yikes. Not looking good for you and I because we've willingly chosen our way is better than God's way. But that's not the end of the scripture, praise God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So therefore, what this means for you and I is that grace is a gift and I can't all of a sudden turn a gift into a wage or something that I can earn or or use as a trophy. Oh wow, look at this great gift that I got, that I earned. No, that's not how gifts work. When you earn something, it's a wage. When you get given something freely that you didn't deserve, it's a gift. When you bless someone with something, when you, even with your children or your spouse, when you give them a gift, you're saying, you didn't do anything to earn this, but I'm gonna give it to you because I love you and I'm not expecting you to pay me back for it. I'm giving it to you freely and willingly because I love you. That's what gifts are. Because wouldn't that be awful if like this next Christmas, Kids open up all the gifts. It's super fun. And then all of a sudden, dad goes, all right. I'm looking forward to this next year when all you jokers pay me back for all of these gifts I just gave you. That would be like the worst Christmas ever. And all of a sudden, they would begin to question whether or not they really wanted the gifts. Right? Because all of a sudden, you put the stipulation that now I've got to pay you back. And some people look at God that way. They look at the fact that God has given me forgiveness and I've somehow got to pay him back. You can't pay God back. You're not that good. And if you try to pay God back, you're actually spitting in the face of his goodness. You see, your service to God is not paying him back. It's not paying penance for the bad and the wrong that you've done. You serving God is a joy that you get to do that he's invited you to be a part of his plan. Not something you do to try to repay God. If you look at it as repaying God, then how can you serve with joy? You see, when I serve with joy, I'm serving in response to, oh my goodness, wow. It's like when someone blesses someone who was in need and then they in turn take that gift that they were given and then they begin to bless other people who are in need. No one told them to do that. No one expected them to do that. They did that because of the love they were shown. They want other people to feel that. They want other people to to experience that, amen? Like that's what, that's what we're supposed to do as Christ followers. And so if I've received grace, that means grace doesn't stop with me. How selfish of me, how prideful of me to, to think that grace stops with me. Grace doesn't stop with me, it doesn't stop with you. Grace flows in us and to us and should flow out of us. Because I freely received and I freely give Because what I've received has become such an amazing thing. And I can't see grace as amazing if I don't see my sin as something that was destining me to a life eternally separated from God. And that's easier sometimes for the person who has had the hard life to understand than it is the person who's grown up in Christian subculture to understand. It's easier sometimes We love these stories, don't we? And maybe that's your story. Oh man, I was was on drugs. I was promiscuous. I was doing this and that. I was stealing. I was was, was rough. I I did all this. And then I found Jesus and we're like, wow. Like we'll pay money to go hear that story told and buy that book, right? It moves us. People will write songs about that story. And we're in awe of those stories when someone had this really dark pass and they come to Jesus and then somehow we don't think it's just as profound 
When the person who was raised in Christian subculture in this safe environment one day woke up to their sin and repented and found Christ and said, I realize I need Jesus and my Christian environment is not saving me. I have sin and I need to repent and I need Jesus to save me. It's the same story. It's the same story. But we go, "Mm, pretty sure, you know, I'm like, no, it's the same story. Because it's not like there's this better way to get saved. (laughs) It just means maybe you didn't have to go through as many difficult things, but it doesn't mean your sin was any less or worse. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if I understand that, if I begin to understand the wickedness and the wretchedness of my sin, then I can see how great this free grace and this free gift is. And the more that I grow in understanding that grace, the more of a priority then it becomes for me to live in light of eternity and to give that grace to other people. It changes the way I interact with other people. It takes me way off my high horse being all judgy and critical. And all of a sudden, instead of reaching down, I'm reaching out. I'm reaching out to my... To, to my fellow man, trying to get them to see the beauty and the love and the forgiveness and the free gift of Christ. And it makes me think a lot less of myself. It knocks me down a peg or two, causes me to repent because Christians can become very judgmental, thus leading us to become very hypocritical. And when we do that, man, we're not messengers of grace. We become prideful. We become exactly what Peter said not to become. Peter's saying, man, don't do this, guys. Like, I know you're being persecuted, but remember, God's going to get the credit for this because God gets the glory, amen? Not you, not me. This is not some Christian entertainment thing that we're doing, right? This is all for the glory of God. You're being equipped today to go and to be messengers of grace. Like Ephesians 4 and 11 says that the fivefold ministry is given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And for the edification of the, the, the unity of the body of Christ so we can all come together and we can get on the same page with this thing and understand that all of us have different roles and different gifts and the whole body and all these joints and all these, these muscles and everything in this body begin to work together and edify itself and love and grow and be a beacon and be salt and be light. And that's what he wants us to be, amen? That's who he's called us to be. In other words, messengers of grace have to remember where they came from. You ever hear people say stuff like that? Don't forget where you came from. Don't let it drag you down and keep you in condemnation because Romans 8 and 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not condemnation, but it's remembering, man, if it weren't for the grace of God, where would I be? If it weren't for the grace of God, where would I be? I would be lost. My life could be going great in the sense of maybe I could have money, I could have prestige in the community, but, but maybe I could have a, a, a nice life that people would be envious of. But where would I be? Even if I had all of that, what if I gained the whole world and I lost my soul? You see, it's nothing. It's all nothing. Let's go over to Acts chapter five. You remember last week when we read a lot of scripture in the book of Acts. And I love that because it helps us grow. Um, We were talking about the need for dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And we read how um, Peter and a lot of the uh, first church disciples were actually filled with the Spirit and they did all these really awesome things that the Spirit empowered them to do, like speak with boldness. 
And some of them were able to speak to other people and share the gospel in their own language, even though they had never like, learned that language. And they were able to uh, pray for people, and they were healed because of what the Holy Spirit was doing in them and through them. And, and, and it was just an amazing thing that we read about. And we talked about how we need a deeper dependence on the Holy Spirit to step into what God's called us to do. And we talked about all that. So this is where we last read, and so we're going to pick up right after that, because all of the disciples then, they just wanted to love each other so well that they like held everything that they owned with an open hand. Like they were willing to like sell any of their stuff to help provide for someone else. Like it didn't matter. Like stuff was nothing to them. They just wanted to make sure everybody was taken care of. And so they had this great spirit of generosity and this generosity was the way they were living. It's one of our core values as a church that generosity is our lifestyle. And it's not just talking about giving money in an offering bucket. It's no, I'm living generously and caring for other people. And so they were like selling like even like land and stuff to make sure people were cared for and were taken care of and that the body of Christ um, was taken care of, especially as they, people were losing their jobs and over following Jesus. And as people were being ostracized from families and from community, they still wanted to make sure that they were taken care of. And that's what was motivating them to do this. And so let's pick up that story right then. In Acts chapter 5, let's pick it up at verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people and the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them, and the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns and around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with clean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all those who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, how cool is that? Like, I don't know about you, but like, if I get like sprung free from prison, like, I'm gonna like want to hop on a camel, a getaway camel, and like, you know, like, like get out of town. Not these guys, because the angel said, "Go and preach." And not only go preach, go preach in the temple. Like you're setting yourselves up to get like rearrested. Like this is going to happen again. <laughs> and they did. Isn't that awesome? Now, when the high priest came, those who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. Uh, that's not in the Bible, but I think it happened. Uh, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So it's like, hey guys, uh, come with us, right? <laughs> and when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you've been, uh, you, you've been filling Jerusalem with your teaching and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you do to these men. For before the days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people to him. And then he perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Isn't this amazing that... These guys are now being brought in. They were beaten. They were told not to do this. And then they go out and they do it again. And now here they are. They get beaten again. And they're rejoicing over it. They're like, we're rejoicing over this. Because they're counted worthy to be suffering. And that they are preaching and proclaiming that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. And as I read over this part, man, when I was studying and preparing for this message, I just thought about this thing with Peter in relation to grace. We read it last week. This is like the third or fourth time, I think, that we've read this, that when Peter interacts with the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, this is the group that's like the, the, the highest level of like authority within the Jewish uh, way of life that still has to be under the authority of the Romans who are occupying them at the time. Sanhedrin is that group of people who actually made that decision to execute Jesus by way of crucifixion. Like they had the authority to carry that out under the Roman rule. That was, the Sanhedrin is that group of people that actually Pontius Pilate deferred to uh, and then they're the ones who basically let the people decide and they also said, let's, let's crucify him and uh, let's let Barabbas go free. And so now this is the group. Like this has just been, you know, just a few months after all of these things that happened, this is the group that actually was overseeing this idea of Jesus being executed. And Peter's addressing them directly. And he keeps telling them this thing over and over again about Jesus, the one you crucified, right? And I think to myself, why does he keep saying that? Like, they know that they crucified Jesus. They know they were responsible. What's he wanting to get out of this? Is he wanting them to feel bad about it? Like, is he wanting them to be shamed? Is he, why does he keep reminding them of that? Because that doesn't seem like a very Christian thing to do, to remind someone of their past, right? It doesn't seem like something that, you know, we teach people to do. By the way, go out and evangelize and keep bringing up what happened, you know, and tell them how bad they are and what they did and how wrong it was. And, and then maybe they'll come to Jesus, you know. Like, I'm like, what is he doing? Why does he keep doing this thing? And then it hit me as I began to read it and I began to study it. Let's look at this again over in Acts chapter 5. Let's look down at verse uh, 30. 
He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Did you see that? Did you see what he did? Did you see what Peter did? Did you catch this? He said, yeah, you killed him by hanging him on a tree. He said, and God exalted him as right hand. He said, and this is why this happened. To give repentance to Israel. To give forgiveness of sins. You see, what Peter was trying to do here is the same thing that I'm trying to help us see today. He was trying to get them to see their sin. He was trying to get them to be aware of how egregious their sin was because here's something that those people didn't need to be taught. Jewish people did not need to be taught about substitutionary atonement and about sacrifice equaling forgiveness. They knew that story. They've been hearing this story ever, ever since the beginning of time. They understand this idea that there's going to have to be some bloodshed and that there's going to have to be forgiveness. They've been practicing this through these rituals, this day of atonement, through different uh, offerings that they would give. So they understood better than anybody else this idea of propitiation, where we have, to, we have to try to satisfy, appease the wrath of God by sacrifice. And it has to be something innocent and something pure that's sacrificed. And this is why the Sanhedrin were so enraged after they said this, after Peter said this. This is why they got so mad. And it said they were so enraged that they wanted to kill Peter after he said this. Because Peter just told them, yes, this is Jesus, the one that you crucified on a tree because he's the one who God has given to Israel who can actually give forgiveness of sins. That's why they got so mad. It was because of that statement. Because Peter wasn't condemning them. He wasn't shaming them. He wanted them to see their sin so they could see Jesus as the answer for forgiveness. So what Peter, in essence, was saying is the same Jesus you crucified is the same one who will forgive you. That's heavy. That's weighty. And you want to know what that is? That's grace. Because we normally don't want to see the person who committed the murder, who committed the crime, also receive forgiveness from the one that they committed the crime against. Like, how can, how can, we're the ones who did this to you. And that's what Peter's saying. Are you catching this? This is the gospel. This is grace. Man, those religious leaders didn't deserve it. And if you and I were left up to it, man, we would want to see them punished too because they crucified Jesus after all. And Jesus is sitting there through Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, telling them, the same Jesus you crucified, you know how bad that was? That's why I keep telling you, because I want you to see how bad it was. I want, you, I want you to feel the weight of the fact that you're responsible, but also that Jesus is sitting there with his hand extended forward saying, I will forgive you for even that. That's grace. That's the message of grace. Here's the big idea for today. God is always with his messengers of grace. God is always with his messengers of grace. Because Gamaliel, the guy who's like, man, he's the guy that actually taught the Apostle Paul, like before he was the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus. He was trained under like the most elite rabbi, under the school of Halil. He trained him and brought him up under this. He was just trained by like a rock star rabbi. 
and now you have him standing up. And when uh, Gamaliel speaks, everyone listens, like the room gets quiet. They want to hear what he has to say. And so all of these men are meeting, this high council, the Sanhedrin, they're meeting, and Gamaliel says, guys, you remember that one guy that had like this cult following? And there were like people getting all excited about it, and it was like this big fad, and all these people came. You remember, like, that ended up not going anywhere. You remember that? And then you remember uh, just a few years back, this guy, Judas of Galilee, do you guys remember him? Everyone's always like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember like his thing like kind of started like blowing up and like people were like talking about it and they were all right. And do you remember like that guy skipped town and then his thing kind of like went nowhere too and it kind of fizzled out. And he said, if this is like that, he's telling the, the religious leaders, Gamaliel says, if this is like that and if it's from man, then it's gonna fizzle out too. But he said, don't do anything to these guys because what if it's actually from God? Because if it's from God, he said, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Oh man, it doesn't take much to get me fired up, but that really gets me going there. Really? If this is genuinely from God, there's nothing you can do to stop it. He said, actually, you want to be careful doing stuff to these guys. Like you don't want to be too hard on them because actually if you oppose them and, and it is from God, you're actually opposing God. And so as I think about this text, I think if what God is commissioning us to do as a church, if what he's calling BCC to do, if what he's calling you and I to do is genuinely and indeed from God, then it cannot fail. And there's nothing the enemy can do about it. There's nothing the enemy can do about it. Amen? Amen. If what he's called us to do is genuinely from God, if we are to connect, if we are to grow, if we are to serve, if we are to impact the Quad Cities and, and impact every generation beyond our lifetime, if we are to do this, then first of all, we can't do it in our own strength. We have to have the Holy Spirit, amen? And we have to be a church filled with grace. We have to be a church that understands the gospel because we can't look at people as we're up here, they're down here, and we're reaching down. No, we're reaching out because we're loving people where they're at and showing them grace because we don't forget where we came from and we remember that we once too needed Jesus. And we have to be careful in classifying people and putting them in groups and it's not this group and that group and this group and that group. And then there's all of us nice Christians over here who've got it all figured out. No, it, it's I'm saved because of his grace. It's not something I did. And man, I want you to get this and I want you to know this. And so I'm going to love you really well and I'm going to listen to you. And I'm going to love you and I'm going to serve you and I'm going to show you the gospel in action. Not me serving you as someone who thinks I'm better than you, but someone who realizes humbling myself under the mighty hand of God, remembering if it weren't for his grace, where would I be? Maybe I would still be earning a fat paycheck. Maybe I would still be someone who people thought well of in the community. Maybe I would still be in a safe, clean, moral environment, but I'd still be lost and destined for an eternal separation from God and hell. I have to have Jesus. Jesus is the difference maker, amen? Not how clean my life looks on the outside. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And when we realize that, then... There's nothing the enemy can do to stop a church who understands that type of grace. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to find confidence in God and in the fact that he's given us his Holy Spirit to do what we cannot do in our own strength. And that requires humility, saying, Lord, I can't do this on my own. Help me to remember where I came from. Help me to remember the, the grace 
that you have so freely given me and help that grace shape the way I view other people, especially those who don't yet know you. Let my heart be enlarged for a greater capacity of compassion because what he's calling us to do, if it's genuinely from him, and I believe and I'm convicted and I'm convinced that it is, then there's nothing that the enemy can do to stop it. There's nothing the government can do to stop it. There's nothing that Satan clubs can't do to stop it. (laughs) Amen? Amen. I mean, all these things that we want to get nervous about, all these things we want to get upset about, listen, there's nothing that the enemy can try to do or the government can try to do or anyone can do to try to stop it. Because if, then, then, then that means that when we see the Quad Cities on this poll, this survey that was done saying, yeah, 15th most post-Christian unchurched city in the United States of America, we go, not for long. Because what God has called us to do is to share the gospel, amen? And we're going to do it with the Holy Spirit depending on the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing, church. What are we doing right now that cannot be done without the power of the Holy Spirit? What are we doing right now? What are we pursuing right now? Because if it can be done in our own strength, then we must not have very much faith in the bigness of our God. Amen? I want us to be a church filled with faith, filled knowing that nothing can stop this thing if God is with us. And it's our job to trust him and remind ourselves we never stop needing grace. And we never stop continually giving grace to those who need it. And I know that there's a lot of ideas that we can have about, oh, people live in certain parts of town. Oh, people came from this certain background. People do these types of things. And oh, it's just, no, 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 don't get nervous about that. It's not about us them. It's not about my way of living versus someone else's living. No, no, no. Don't get nervous about that. Just remember the grace you were given and let that temper and adjust and correct your lenses. Some of us have corrective lenses and I hope that today the word can be a corrective lens for you to help correct and adjust the way you were seeing things so that you can begin to see things the way God wants you to see it. Amen humble our hearts. So God, help us do that. Humble us today. Humble us from our pride. I know I can be prideful. And I can start thinking because I was raised up in church that I've gotten all these different uh, things that maybe I'm, I'm in a different classification. I want to classify myself. Think I'm better and I'm not. So I ask you to forgive me for that. Forgive us when we slip into that and we slide into that. Help us to temper our hearts and not think more highly of ourselves than we should. Help us to not forget to communicate the gospel to our children and not assume that they know the gospel just simply because of Christian subculture. Let us continue to be grace-filled, grace-sharing people as we are messengers of your grace. We can only do this by the power of your spirit and you said for us to ask. So we're asking collectively right now, Holy Spirit, fill us move in us and through us for what brings God glory and what brings people to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.